for the next uh, few weeks. I'm going to do a little interim before settling into a new series. Uh, well, actually, I'm going to do a little interim before Pastor Morris settles into a new series. And uh, I want to go back to Exodus, uh, to a passage, uh, a few of the passages that I've looked at before here and there. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to go back to the book of Exodus chapter 32 and look at God's covenant faithfulness, uh, the way he deals with his people uh, in their sin, because uh, that's the way we know how he deals with us. And uh, so we want, to, we want to do that. Leviticus chapter 32. Now, we're picking up in 32 because what's going on here is that the Lord has given the Ten Commandments and he has given all the, all the teaching that flow out of the Ten Commandments to the people through Moses. And then uh, in chapter 24, after the people have taken their vows to, to the covenant, uh, God calls Moses back up on Sinai. And, uh, and he's going to give him this which he has given them by word. He's now going to write it on the stones. So that's where we enter in in chapter 32 is Moses is there on Mount Sinai. And, uh, and this is where we find ourselves with uh, the people. Now, you remember there's, there's much that, that intervenes between chapter 20 and chapter 32. But uh, we'll pick up on that as we enter into this. We're going to look at the first 14 verses tonight. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who you brought up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. 
Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this evening. Keep us alert for these these few minutes, and may you call us away from this kind of idolatrous life, away from this kind of complaining life, into a life that is marked by faithfulness, that we would trust you, that we'd wait on you, and we ask this in the wonderful name of Jesus, amen. Covenant is a big, a big deal in the Bible. The word itself occurs almost 300 times. If I remember correctly from, from a study a few years ago, it's 298 times to be exact. Now, that's if my memory's not failing me. But it's close to 300. The concept occurs many more times. For instance... In the very opening chapters of Genesis, the word covenant doesn't appear, but God enters into a covenant with Adam, into that covenant of works. If you do this, you will live. If you, if you disobey me, you will surely die. Everything there for a covenant is present. Then after the sin takes place, God comes and he enters into covenant and there we see the transition from the covenant of works or life, as our confession uses interchangeably, and the covenant of grace. The first time the word appears is in Genesis 6 in the context of Noah. And then Noah to Abraham and Abraham to Moses. And the context we're in now is Moses. And then to David, we find that in 1 Samuel 7. And then uh, we, we learn that Christ is the mediator and the surety of the new covenant. So we see this succession of covenants. Gerhardus Voss referred to it as succession of berit makings. Berit is just the Old Testament word for, for covenant, the cutting of the covenant. And so we're in the context of the Mosaic covenant here. God has entered into, and, uh, you know, I thought we were done with that, that thing. We got kind of grew happy in not hearing that squeal when the wheel comes on. So 
If you hadn't already noticed it, I'm sorry, I just drew your attention to it, but it's driving me crazy. Now, uh, let me read you something from our Confession of Faith, Chapter 7, of God's covenant with man. And I would encourage you to go back there maybe tonight or tomorrow and, and read the entire chapter and look up the Bible references. The distance between God and the Creator is so great. Now, I want to ask you something. We're not just talking about spatial distance. and We're not talking about time distance. We're talking about, we're talking about moral distance here. Okay? And if any place in the Bible just screams distance between God and the creature as being great is this passage. And in that context, God was just up on the mountainside with Moses. And yet the distance was great. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. See, when God enters into his, any relationship with us, it's through covenant. He binds himself to us and he keeps that covenant. That's chapter 7, paragraph 1. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam. I just spoke of that. Then paragraph 3 says this, Man by his fall having made himself incapable of life, by that covenant the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace whereby he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. Everything we need for salvation is bound up in the covenant, covenant of grace. This covenant is frequently set forth in the scripture by the name of the Testaments, reference to the death of Jesus the testator. Paragraph 5, this covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews. All for signifying Christ to come which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah to whom, or by whom rather, they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation is called the Old Testament. In other words, everything a person needed to know the Messiah and be saved from sin was there in the Old Testament, given through the covenant. Under the gospel, paragraph 6, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant's dispensed are preaching the word, the administration of the sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles. That is, it's offered, though it's simpler, it's offered more clearly and fully to the nations than the preaching of the gospel was in the old covenant. Then it closes this way. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace, 
differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Dispensations speaking of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so, early in the Confession of Faith, the Westminster Divines established that covenant is vital if we are to know God. And it's God reaching out to us. It's God coming down to us. Did you notice in that first paragraph, the voluntary condescension of God? Don't you love that? Not coerced condescension. Not begrudged condescension. But voluntary condescension. In other words, he chose to do it. And we know why from Deuteronomy 7.7. Because he loved us. That's it. Plain and simple. And we really struggle with that, don't we? That he just loves us. Well, here we are. God has shown his love. He has delivered the people from Egypt. He's given them his law. And by the way, it wasn't the first time God had written it on their hearts in the beginning. That's what Adam and Eve had written on their heart was the law of God. But man's hearts had grown hard and God then restates it. Just like you parents, when your children's hearts grow hard. And you've had to tell them for the umpteenth time. And you do it because you love them. Because they forget. Or they become recalcitrant. And so they know they're not doing what you told them to do. But they just, they don't want to do it. They want to do something else. Because right now, for some reason, that something else seems to be more important and more fun and so you have to one more time say here's the rules here's the law of the land here's and here's by the way why parents always give the why reason don't just throw out the moralisms explain the reasons behind it and so God's done that the people have signed on to it chapter 24 yes we will do it we, we bind ourselves to God as well. So God then says, all right, Moses, come on up. We're going to write this on tablets. And so Moses is up there just scratching away on the rocks. And in the middle of that, here's what happens. When the people saw... That Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, who knows where he is? We don't even know if he's going to come back or not. Isn't it wonderful how, how, how beautifully this morning and tonight tie in together? What was the problem? They didn't want to wait on God. God's timing wasn't good enough for them. And so they got impatient. And so they decided to do what they thought was good and right. These people had always kind of liked what the other nations did. 
And so here they are. And they want gods like the other nations. So Aaron says, instead of saying, no, I'm not going to do this. He says, all right. Give me your gold. And so he makes them a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And notice what Aaron says. When he saw this, he built an altar before it. I mean, Aaron, you're just compounding this thing. He built, he built an altar. And Aaron made proclamation, said, tomorrow shall be a feast to, notice, Yahweh. We're going to have a feast for our covenant faithful God by disobeying him. And they rose up early the next day. They were anxious. They were ready. They were motivated. They rose up early the next morning. They offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And then it says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So the first point you see in the outline, God's covenant people construct idols of shiny things. We won't spend time on this simply as a warning that we have a propensity as fallen human beings to make idols. Especially of expensive, shiny things. You say, oh, I mean, I, I was told a few years back by someone that we can't make idols. We don't have idols now like people used to. We don't live in that kind of culture. What she didn't understand was that idolatry is a matter of the heart, not a matter of tangible, physical objects. Did you notice that? We referred to it last week also, but it fit perfectly this week. So we read the entire passage instead of just one verse like we did last week. If you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. And then it says this, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. I mean, you, you could say that sexual immorality is a physical thing. But really, what Paul's getting at here are all these things of the heart. The desire to commit sexual immorality. The desire to live an impure life. The, the physical passions, the evil desires. And wanting what other people have and it doesn't belong to you. Covetousness. It's all idolatry. So what the woman that said that to me didn't understand was the Bible. The Bible is clear that it's not just, see, it, it wasn't just that they wanted a golden calf. It's that they wanted something, anything. They didn't specify. Did you notice that? Aaron came up with that. 
So three little subpoints here. God's covenant people construct idols of shiny things. Sin is man's priority over God. Now these are the people that had been laboring with bloody fingers, aching backs in Egypt. Going out, gathering the straw, bringing in the dirt and the sand to make the bricks. Complaining. They're killing us. And God delivered them. He heard their cries, the scripture says, and they delivered them. He delivered them, rather. And they get out in the wilderness, and we're hungry. He gives them manna. And that manna pointed them toward the Messiah, who's the bread of life. And they got thirsty, so he gave them water from a rock. And that rock pointed them to Christ, the Messiah. And they got tired of the manna and they said, boy, we sure would like to have some meat. As if they ate meat in Egypt. They were on slave rations in Egypt. And God gives them quail. And he protected them against all of the creatures of the wild and all the surrounding nations. And they preferred sin over God. And we're in the same boat, folks. We fall in the same trap, do we not? God does all these wonderful things for us. He blesses us. It may not be materially. He blesses in many ways. And we turn to sin instead of to him. And when we have a need, we turn to to our own ways rather than to him. Second subpoint: sin is man's preference to faithfulness. Sin is man's preference to faithfulness. They had taken a vow to God after the giving of the law in Exodus chapter 24. But they preferred to be unfaithful. How soon they forgot. And the timing is not There's not much time lapse between chapter 24 and chapter 32. And then finally, sin is given to material things versus spiritual things. And that's just to wrap up the first two subpoints. Sin is given to material things rather than spiritual things. Now granted, they made those material things a spiritual thing. But it's easy, like we said this morning, it's easy for us to, to, to want, we gravitate towards sight, don't we? Living by sight instead of by faith. What did it matter to them if Moses took another hour or a day or a week? God's taking care of them down there. And by the way, they're not having to pack up and move. Anybody like packing up and moving? No, I mean, they, they've got it made down there at the foot of the mountain. God's providing everything they need. What would it matter how much longer Moses is up there? Sin. Idleness leads to sin often. Second major point, God's covenant faithfulness considers our idolatrous acts. It's God's covenant faithfulness that looks down off that mountain and sees what's going on 
and responds. This is a simple point that God is conscious of what we do. And yet we forget, don't we? And even if we haven't forgotten, we live sometimes like he's not conscious of what's going on. Unlike the fictitious Santa Claus who does not see when you are sleeping, he doesn't know when you've been bad or good, God does. He always knows. And this is seen in the anthropomorphic language used here. And we read it in verse. So all the people, verse uh, verse uh, 7, the Lord said to Moses, uh, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly. I mean, see, quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Isn't that interesting? God heard them, but Moses couldn't. The creator-creature distinction. God saw them, but Moses didn't. We read on, and we'll get to this later. In verse 15, Moses turned and went down the mountain with two tablets of testimony in his hand. They were written on both sides, on the front and the back they were written. He gets down, and listen, as he's going off the mountain, finally, uh, he hears the, the noise. And then he came near the camp and he saw. He has to get right down there before he can hear them. Moses does. And he has to get right there before he can see them. But God, up in the Shekinah cloud, up removed in the mountainside, could see and hear them from a distance. This is just getting to, this is just, as I said, anthropomorphic language. God knows everything, he sees everything, he's present everywhere. You say, well, why does, why does it say he saw and he heard? Well, it's because we're humans and that's the way we know things. And so the scriptures, as Calvin says, accommodate themselves to us to help poor pitiful humans understand that just like we see things and hear things in a, in, a, in a more divine and all-present way, God sees and hears things. I've seen this people. And then he responds. His wrath burned hot against them, verses 10 and 12 say. Now, therefore, let me alone, speaking to Moses, my wrath, so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. I'll just deal with you, Moses. We'll just start this thing over. I did it once, I can do it again. We'll just start over. And then...
we need to pay attention here because it's easy for us sometimes when we read passages like that and we say, yeah, but God doesn't deal with his, his people like that. Well, this, that's who these people were. They were his people. They were his covenant people. These were the people that he had brought out of Egypt. These were the people that had been saved by the Passover blood. Remember? These weren't just any old people. These weren't the nations of the world. These were God's people. And they had rebelled against him. Here's this great separation that has come between the people and their God. And we have to remember that that happens, can easily happen to us as a church. It can happen as people individually. And here's the hope. Move straight from, hey, I'm going to pour my wrath out on them. And verse 11, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, you just... If you want to, just think of it this way. Dr. Kelly, Doug Kelly, in his book, If God Knows Why Pray, uh, has a whole section on arguing with God in prayer. And if imploring God's not arguing, I don't know what else it is. And you see this over and over. Arguing with God. And so he begins, Lord... Why does, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with your great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, and now he's consuming them? I mean, Moses is making all the arguments. This won't be good for your reputation, God. And why would you do it? We've made it this far. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember, and then he calls on the covenant. Remember Abraham. Remember Isaac and Israel. He uses the name Israel. That was Jacob, remember? God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring in other words, he's, his argument is this. Here they are. The numbers are vast. We don't know how many. In the millions, though, we know they're in the millions. If you go back and do the numbers from the Exodus and then just, just do a little math from there, having children... You got millions. And he says, in effect, he says, Lord, you said they were going to be in the millions. You said they're going to be like the stars of the heaven. And that they're going to inherit. He's just reminding God of the covenant. As if God needed reminding. Because he doesn't forget. Except our sins. And notice what it says in verse 14. And the Lord relented. And the Lord relented. We need a mediator. 
The book of Hebrews says that we have one that's even better than Moses. And Moses did a pretty good job right there. Now let me answer a question. So God changed his mind? No. God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't change. God is immutable by nature. Again, we're into anthropomorphic language here. And all of this is to help us understand. Here's the, here's the, here's the way we have to think about this. From eternity, God decreed both the threat to destroy them and the reprieve. So he didn't change at all. He'd already decreed all this. Here's our problem in understanding that is we, we have a hard enough time planning our day and seeing it happen the way we plan it. And we do have to change roots. We do have to change plans. But God doesn't. He is absolute. So when he decreed, this is, this is it. And then he uses all this to show us this remarkable mind of his from eternity grappling and settling so that this is the way it happened. Now, one last thing before we go. God's covenant faithfulness is conscious of the mediator. We've already seen Moses enter into his mediatorial role, arguing with God, imploring the Lord. He sees the sin of the people and he explains his holy intention to deal with it in justice. And Moses stands up and God relents. Moses called God to remember the covenant. It's a good thing, by the way. This is a wonderful prayer for us to pay attention to. We can pray prayers like this. You go to the Psalms. How often David does similar things. David was very transparent with God. There were no little benign, pious, little prayers prayed in the Psalms. And this is not one, is it? You'd almost think that's a dangerous prayer to pray right there. You're imploring God. You're actually, Moses, reminding God, the God who knows all things and doesn't forget a thing. And see, when we're doing that, what's great about it is it's making us remember. It's calling us to remembrance. Because we have to remember these things in order to pray these things. I have to feel a little bit like God sits in the heavens and chuckles. We know he does. The scriptures say he does. That he laughs. And he says, yeah, it took this for him to remember that. But he did remember it. And I am a covenant faithful God. And I'm going to hear his prayer. If God knows why I pray. That's why, because it gets us in sync with God. 
Now, ultimately, though, when we read this passage, particularly verses 11 through 14, we should be reminded that Moses was a type, a foreshadowing, a foresignifying, as our confession language says, a foresignifying of Christ. The book of Hebrews, again, I'll reference you there. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about, right? Jesus was a better David. Jesus was a better Abraham. Jesus was a better Moses. And so here he's pointing us to one who's better than him. And we know that in Hebrews chapter 7, that our Lord Jesus Christ mediates for us. He prays for us continually. And we need it. In 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. This concept of mediator goes back in, in typological fashion to Genesis chapter 15 with the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. And our Lord Jesus is typified there. Abraham and his descendants that were going to be more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea were promised divine aid for their sin and for their separation from God. And you see it signified here, typified, shadowed in Moses, but it's only fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad that the Lord Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father right now and he is arguing for us? He's imploring his Father on our behalf. Because I'm going to tell you folks, if he didn't, we wouldn't make it out of this building alive. I know my evil heart, and I suspect yours are equally bad. Idolatry. Aren't you glad that he sees our condition and he does something about it? Aren't you glad he's consistent with himself? He keeps his covenant. Aren't you glad that he provided a mediator for us in Jesus Christ? One that was better than Moses. If Moses succeeded here, how much more? Argument from lesser to the greater. How much more does our our Savior Jesus succeed in his mediatorial work for us? Perfectly. The Hebrews were, were thankful for Moses. I can guarantee you that. How much more should we be thankful for Jesus? May his faithfulness enlarge our faith and our love for him tonight. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for hearing this feeble attempt to open your word. But more than that, thank you for Jesus, our mediator. So that when we fall into idolatry, you see, you hear, and he comes to our aid. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.